You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And once again today, my guest is teacher, author, historian, witness and survivor, Nobel Peace Laureate Ellie Wiesel. And I owe my guests so much for joining me so often at this table. And now, of course, for giving in the fall of 2013 the first of Rutgers University's annual Richard Hefner Open Mind Lecture Series. Some years ago, Mr. Wiesel and I did a little book of essays drawn from our many open mind conversations. I noted then that his breadth of humanistic understanding, his profound wisdom, his always reassuring presence, together with the warmth of our personal relationship, have all combined to make him the open mind's quintessential guest. And the very degree to which Ellie's beliefs are so deeply rooted in and reflect his Judaic tenets and traditions, while mine are quite so secular, has, I hope, added an important and provocative dimension to the quality of our exchanges, as together we embrace John Milton's singular query, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Today, however, I wonder if we two friends can agree on truth, for this open mind conversation relates to a Belknap book recently published by the Harvard University Press titled very simply, FDR and the Jews, written by Richard Breitman and Alan Lichtman, both distinguished professors of history at American University. And its subject can't help but be approached so differently by the one of us who as a Jewish child in Europe in the 1940s survived the Holocaust but suffered so outrageously in Auschwitz, his family murdered by the Nazis, and by the other who then as a Jewish adolescent in America already appreciated the limitations of American politics and social attitudes. So that perhaps I can best begin today's conversation about FDR and the Jews by referring to the conclusion of the impressive book that has occasioned it and by asking my guest for his reactions. Its authors write, Roosevelt lived during the war and the Holocaust, but he inhabited a pre-Holocaust world. Few of his contemporaries recognized the political or moral significance of the events we now scrutinize carefully. Ironically, our work suggests that American Jews of Roosevelt's own time came close to a balanced and accurate assessment of their president. Although most American Jews, both leaders and ordinary folk, revered the president, they were not blind to his limitations or the constraints under which he operated. Even Jewish advocates close to FDR recognized that he often failed to turn humanitarian principles into action to benefit Jewish victims of Nazism. They also knew, however, that without his leadership, the resistance to Nazi aggression would have been much weaker than it was, perhaps even fatally so. For Jews, 
he posed a far better choice than the political opponents of his era, not just in his response to Jewish peril, but also in his domestic and foreign policies and his integration of Jews into American government. Now, Ellie, I know that you've never hesitated to speak truth to power. And in 1985, when Ronald Reagan planned not to visit a concentration camp site with West Germany's Chancellor Helmut Kohl, but rather the Bitburg Military Cemetery containing the remains of 49 members of the Waffen-SS. At the White House, where you were to receive a Congressional Medal, you didn't hesitate to say, Mr. President, that place is not your place. Your place is with the victims of the SS. And in 1999, at a Clinton White House Millennium Dinner on the perils of indifference, you paid your respects to FDR as a great leader, but, but with what you called some anguish and pain, you also noted to the President and Hillary Clinton, nevertheless, his image in Jewish history, I must say it, his image in Jewish history is flawed. And I wonder if you've modified your thinking at all now, perhaps noting Felix Frankfurter's prescient words just weeks after FDR's death, when he said, it has been wisely said that if the judgment of the time must be corrected by that of posterity, it is no less true that the judgment of posterity must be corrected by that of the time. How do you react? What's your feeling now, so many years later? Well, the difference between, between us that you were here and I was not. Uh, you know American history better than I do, but I study naturally, and I'm a great admirer of, of uh, all the people that you admire, including FDR. After all, he was a father figure to European Jewry. Uh, we knew, we heard about Churchill, sometimes we listened to his speeches on the radio, clandestinely, but nevertheless, for us, the father image was, again, it was he, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We knew that whatever happens, happens only because he wants it to happen, if it's good. And then when we learned later on, much, much later, of course, during the war we didn't have these questions, I was too young, didn't have access to material, all we knew was from press reports. But after the war, when I realized that he knew so much, remember, we in Eastern Europe, in occupied Eastern Europe, in the ghettos and the camps, we were convinced, first of all, that nobody knew what was happening, that somehow Auschwitz was placed in, 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 in somewhere in a non-existent uh, universe, hidden from culture, hidden from humanity, hidden from the world, that the concentration camp was a universe in itself, but far away, unreachable. Only afterwards we found out, and that's to our great shock, that they knew, they all knew what Auschwitz meant. It's a shock. Roosevelt knew. Hilly, what would you have had Roosevelt and the administration do? Again, I, I, I didn't have access to all the, all the sources of information then and not even now. But what 
first of all, Roosevelt was known as a great humanist and a great friend of, of all the victims of Hitler and therefore the Jews. We knew that. That was our hope. First of all, his speech, he was known for his speeches. He should have given one, one address, but a powerful address. Simply saying to Mr. Hitler, hey, 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 you are now crossing the limit. We know that war is cruel. All wars are cruel. And we know what anti-Semitism means, that it dominated uh, the German sensitivities and policies and so forth. We know all that. But there are limits even there. Don't cross those limits. They knew what they were preparing, especially now when we read all the secrets that were known through Enigma. We knew everything. The Enigma project we know now, for instance, of course, later, much later, that they heard the discussions between the tank commanders, between those who went to Auschwitz. They knew everything. Since they knew, how come that they didn't speak about it? Where was Roosevelt, who was known really for not only for his acts, but for his words? You ask, why didn't they speak? Why didn't he? Let us narrow it down to FDR. Because certainly we know enough about the people who surrounded him. I'm not now talking about Morgenthau yeah, or yeah. Uh, Rosenman or um, his Jewish advisors, uh, but the State Department. We know that they would not have um, urged him to make such a speech because we know that the background of the State Department was basically anti-Semitic. But he was the president. He was the president, but uh, I wonder if you appreciate and here is where the difference is. You were doing the suffering. You were in a concentration camp. I was an adolescent who was becoming more and more aware of what American politics was like and of what American um, social attitudes were like, more and more aware of anti-Semitism in America. Had Roosevelt spoken out as specifically as you wish he had, spoken out at all, really, for what was going on in Europe, do you think that he would have been able to maintain his political power? My friend, now I know, of course, all that. Had he spoken up, he was afraid, actually, that it would be taken as a war, a Jewish war. And we wouldn't have fought it. And that's the whole, I, I understand it. I'm, no, the more I learn, of course, the less uh, condemning I am. I, I understand now. He was afraid of being interpreted by his adversaries, surely, that he was waging a Jewish war. When I read now the sources in the newspapers and so forth, it was a legitimate fear. He wanted the war to be a real war, not only for Jews, but for whatever is decent, whatever is noble, whatever is human, in humanity, of course he wanted that. But he was afraid. And therefore he did probably advised by his even Jewish friends, sure. So now I'm much less critical than before, really. Knowing what I know now, I'm much less critical. I'm still critical because a leader should know how to overcome all the other arguments to say, hey, I know you are right, but nevertheless, Morally speaking, we must speak up. Do you make that distinction between morally speaking and um, 
what I guess I must call politically or realistically speaking. Oh, there is a distinction. But the leader must go beyond that. What, who is a leader? A leader is not only a leader who comes out with ideas, but also with words. Churchill won the war with his words, as smart as with his decisions, with words. And Roosevelt's words were listened to, especially in Berlin. Now Roosevelt gave in 1942, I remember, all kinds of declarations, great statements, never mentioned the word Jew. A December speech, I remember, he made somewhere. Never mentioned. So what do you think in Berlin the reaction was? In Berlin they said to themselves, they don't care. We can do with our Jews whatever we want, because even in America they don't care. The fact is, they weren't even mentioned. Not really. So, of course, in hindsight, I know all that, in hindsight. But in hindsight, we have the right to ask questions. Not to judge, but to ask questions. Yes, but one asks questions. Um, in a way, this book, FDR and the Jews, is in a very real sense a counterpoint against the growing anti-FDR sentiment among a number of Jews. Is, is that not true? Yes, but you know, up and down. <laughs> up and down? <laughs> Sometimes, uh, again, when we studied the history of the Second World War from the Jewish view, viewpoint, no matter what, we cannot not thank God for giving us FDR. We used to say prayers for him in my little town, in the Carpathian Mountains, we said prayers for FDR. And I still think that it was justified. Because he was a friend of humanity. I think even a friend of the, of, of the Jewish victims, he was a friend. Now we want, I wanted him to be more and, and, and become the big leader, you know, and make big speeches and, and, and lead the world really against Hitler for what he was doing, mainly, mainly to the Jewish people. Uh, Hitler did not want to exterminate any other nation except the Jewish people. That was his goal. So uh, I expected really from FDR to be such a leader, a kind of Moses-like, Moses-like uh, orator. And Moses was a very poor orator, <laughs> but he was a great leader. Uh, but Moses but was speaking to his own people. And FDR's people and I remember that so well. I remember as a kid, even in New York, even in New York where I was protected by so many fellow Jews, even in New York being terribly much aware of what, how much of a contribution anti-Semitism was making to the America First attitude. Mm -hmm. And I was aware of every step that FDR made in trying to educate Americans. You very wisely, and uh, such an important point that you make, what would have been thought in Berlin uh, if FDR had spoken out about the Jews and the persecution of the Jews early on? And I do appreciate what you say. They must have thought he doesn't care, he's not talking about exactly it. Exactly what they said, because look, the Germans, for the Germans, the killing of the Jews was a major, a major objective, if not the most important objective in, in all of their programs, was the killing of the Jews, the extermination of the Jewish people. But they didn't do it immediately, to the end, slowly. 
first one thing and then the next. First, let's say the yellow star and then the ghettos and then the Auschwitz, slowly. And each time they said, what is the reaction? You read the diaries of Goebbels. And he says it, he says it, slowly. They were watching. What was the reaction in the free world? And the reaction was zero. So they said, ah, if they don't care, why should we? And that's how it went. The final solution wasn't really so long arrived at, was it? Was your own feeling, I know, must be that Hitler, for Hitler, it was the final solution all along. Absolutely. In the beginning, he wanted really, well, he had all kinds of ideas, even to send, let's say, uh, to, to, create, to create a Palestine for the Jews from Europe in the late 30s, early 40s even. So that was that. Then he said, if nobody wants them, why should we? It's a very sad statement on the world that Hitler used the world to justify his own crimes. You say a very sad statement. How do we account for it, Ellie? You and I have talked about this many times, and I still don't understand. <laughs> Maybe you do. I don't, really. I don't, because I'm still an idealist and still naive, and I really believe that culture means a different attitude, a more noble attitude, that no matter what, the nobility of the human being prevails, no matter where and when it prevails. How I still believe that. How much more of a cultured, cultured people would you find than the Germans? Do you know, normally I should have given up on culture. I should have said, go to hell. If those who were the killers in the Einsatzkommandos, they were the worst of all the Einsatzkommandos, had PhDs, just, a PhD in Germany was not like a PhD in America now. It wasn't easy to obtain. No, it's not easy here either, but not like here. I know what you mean. Oh, come on. They all had PhDs, doctor this and doctor that, and they were the killers. They gave the orders. Some of them were even the heads of all kinds of, of, of ISIS commandos. How could they? How could they study uh, Hegel and, 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 and Heine? Heine, they didn't, they were too Jewish. But how could they in the morning and, and, and in the afternoon go and kill? Okay, Ellie, I put the question to you. How could they? You've oh. considered this for so long. What is your final conclusion? not a final conclusion, it's a kind of attempted conclusion. They forgot. A different God? No, they forgot. They forgot. They so. forgot that what? ultimately, ultimately, it is the human being that justifies all our quests, the human being. They believed in turning humanity into an inhuman experiment. When you, when you study what the Germans have done, to the Jewish people and to their victims in general, to the oppressed nations, is to transform history, the metaphysical aspect of history, that they can take human beings and turn them into objects. Never happened before, into objects. Children and grandparents, into objects. Now I go back to what you say, you should have said, go to hell to culture, because they were so cultured. If that culture could have led, true. But I believe in, you know, in, in spite of. 
Normally, I should have given up on culture, but how can I give up on culture? And culture is not only what the Germans have done. You didn't give up on God. I don't give up on God either. Oh, I have questions. I have questions. And I argue with God a lot, more than you think. And I pray, and I believe in prayer. To God? Even to God. But I pray to God almost against God. What has he done to his creation? What did he allow his creation to become? Certainly. That's in our religion, in our tradition. We may argue with God. You mentioned Moses before. Moses was a stutterer. He was the poorest orator in history. And nevertheless, he was the great Moses. But he also knew how to speak to God and the people. You wanted to go back to FDR. You wanted him to be more mosaic. I wanted him to be more visionary, more prophetic, because he was the number one leader in the world to fight and defeat Hitler. When you said to Reagan, Mr. President, your place is not at Pittsburgh. It's not that your place, yeah. Your place is with the victims. All the time, absolutely. I believe in it. This is, if, if I have a certain credo, it's part of my credo. I must always be with the victims. What, what is this saying to you? Reagan had to be told this. Uh, in a sense, the Clintons had to be reminded in 99 about FDR's limitations. FDR's limitations and what he didn't do itself. What does it lead you to think about America and America? In spite of them, I believe in America. You know, that when I got the American citizenship, the first thing I did, I took out my passport. Never had a passport in my life. I always carry it with me to this day. First time in my life that I had a passport. I was always unwelcome as a stateless person. When I think of my American citizenship, I'm so proud, more, almost as much as I got the Nobel Prize, just to be an American citizen, to have citizenship, a country that wants me, that will protect me. That's something. Remember, I came here as a refugee, as a stateless refugee. So therefore, when I think of America, when I go, I, I went once to West Point just to thank the American army. What they have done. I remember when they came to Buchenwald, I remember a black sergeant, I think, who, who began weeping when he saw us. He didn't stop weeping. Uh, I, listen, to me, therefore, to me, Americanism is, is an ideal, a great ideal. I'm grateful to America. I know all the shortcomings, remember. I, I lived here all my life now. I know. I took part in so many battles for, for I, I hope, good causes, even the against the administration, whatever it was. I, of course I did. But nevertheless, ultimately, what I feel about America is always gratitude. And America and Israel now, where are you? Two democracies, big and small. Look, I don't think there is any country in the world uh, that, that Israel has a closer relations than America. 
America and Israel somehow are together, have been together all the time. Sometimes there are quarrels. It's normal. Always details. But whoever the president is, it's always details. The fact is that Israel would not have, I think, become a state had it not been for the help that we got from, from, from America in 1947 and then 48, the vote, the first vote was Russia and, and America. So, I, and I believe in memory, we should remember all that. Going back to FDR and the Jews, does your memory permit you now, as you suggest, to have a more benign uh, relationship between yourself and Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Not benign, <laughs> I'd say more uh, qualified. And even there, with all the criticism I had, and some of it I still hold on to, I think of, uh, of FDR with great admiration for what he has done to America and the world, and therefore to the Jewish people as well, and to Jewish history. I, 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 I repeat, and I saw an American soldier who came to Buchenwald and he began weeping weeping like a child, because he saw what he saw, the truth. And uh, for me, America is still the ideal, the very ideal that so many nations in the world would like to imitate and should. Elliot, last question before we, we conclude. Would you have bombed the concentration camps? We know that if they had bombed the railroads, they would have been rebuilt immediately. But the camps? The camps, I don't know, because their argument is, if we had bombed the camps, we would have killed the very in inmates and so forth. It's an argument. I, I can say, as one who was there, whenever we saw the, at night, we heard the planes over, flying over Auschwitz and so forth, we wanted them to bomb us. We thought we were going to die anyway, so why not bomb it? Why not die in the bombs? But at the same time, it's a decision, a military decision, I don't know how, but they could have done it so well. They could have bombed the railways, yes, absolutely. Yes, three days later they would have rebuilt them and bombed them again. But at least the Germans would have known that they care, that the world cares by bombing them, that they care. I repeat what we have said in our conversations already many, many times. The fact is we saw that nobody cared, that the world knew and did nothing. Ellie, I always know that you care, and I care, and I respect so much your judgment. And thank you again for coming on The Open Mind. Well, thank you, as always. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind 